Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Everyone Talks to Liz. I have such great news for you. I'm not allowed to really give you numbers, but uh, let's put it this way. So many of you are listening to this podcast. We are already breaking last year's record. So I just can't thank you enough. It means so much to me. And and listen, <laughs> I'm just all geeked up. I don't even know what to say. Okay, uh, today, I wanted to let you know something. I'm not a big believer that you can predict greatness in high school kids just because of, say, their involvement in extracurricular activities. I personally never ran for student body president. I wasn't a high school sports star either. Okay, I did try out for the Beverly Hills High School cheerleading squad and was promptly rejected because I got nauseous doing somersaults and cartwheels. What do you want? I'm Jewish. What do you want? I get <laughs> nauseous. Something's pulling. But after research <laughs> But after researching my newest everyone talks to Liz guest, it was just so obvious he was not only going to flourish in whatever professional path he followed, but would make history by choosing, in some cases, wildly controversial choices. Ike Sorkin is perhaps best known for representing Bernie Madoff. You know him, right? The financier and Wall Street bigwig who pled guilty to the largest investor fraud ever committed by a single person. I mean, think about that. Ike stepped up to defend a guy who, after being arrested for running the largest Ponzi scheme in history, was one of the most reviled men in America. To do that, defend the man who stole billions from charities and families, the proverbial widows and orphans who invested with him, you've got to have a strong spine and guts made of steel. Ike has also represented Jordan Belfort. Yes, the infamous Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Played by Leo DiCaprio in the movie, that guy. And here's the one I want to know about. A Syrian convicted of selling arms to undercover agents posing as anti-American terrorists. There's a good bet that anyone who takes on highly unpopular tasks is probably a complicated individual. And maybe would those who knew him growing up on Long Island where he was in high school, senior class president, center of the football team and star shot put in track and field, would they have guessed that he would rise to the top of the defense law world? Well, let's find out more from Ira Lee Sorkin, Ike Sorkin himself. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz, Ike. Thank you. It's good to be here and good to talk to you. Great to have you. You know, I I think it's controversial. You talk about controversial choices. I think it's actually controversial to choose the shot put as your sport. What is it? You hold a big, heavy ball and then you throw it? Yeah. You, throw, <laughs> you, you don't really throw it. You push it out. Uh, it's usually, the high school is 12 pounds. College and Olympics is 16 pounds. Uh, in those days, um, I was uh, pretty strong. Now at my age, it's not even six pounds. And I <laughs> But it's uh, it's something that I gravitated to. I had a wonderful, wonderful coach who also coached football, uh, World War II vet, 
wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, and uh, it's something I gravitated to. I'm glad you just mentioned World War II. So that was when you were in high school that he was a veteran. Yes. But you were born in 1943 in the middle of the World War II years. Tell me about your parents and what they were doing at the time and what your childhood was like in the early years. Well, my father was in the Navy um, and uh, in Naval Intelligence. Uh, my mother was a housewife. Uh, they were both children of immigrants. My father's parents came from Russia. Uh, indeed, my father's father was uh, in the Tsar's army before coming to the United States in 1909. Wow. He fought the Tsar's army against the Japanese in 1905. Uh, my mother's parents, one came from Poland, our mother, and uh, my grandfather came from Lithuania. Uh, it's interesting, the one who, uh, the grandparent who came from Poland, I'm asked where, what town, and my answer is a little town that no longer exists because the Nazis destroyed the town in Poland. Um, so they came to the United States, the grandparents. Uh, my father uh, worked very hard. Uh, he, uh, uh, interestingly, I didn't know this till after he died, in 1931, uh, he got an appointment to West Point. Um, and uh, that was pretty rare in the early 30s for a, a Jewish kid from the Lower East Side to get an appointment to West Point. Mm. He didn't go because my grandparents were so poor that uh, he had to go work. And it took him eight years of college because he had to work a semester, get enough money for the next semester. He'd drop out. He'd work again, get enough money for the next semester. Oh. And carried him through uh, eight years because he had to keep dropping out to get enough money uh, for college. And... Uh, he was a printer. Um, I began working in his printing plant, small plant, printing plant on the west side, downtown, when I was 13 years old. And I learned how to run heavy machinery. Um, fortunately, the pressmen and operators pushed me aside when the inspectors came in <laughs> to have a 13 year old kid uh, heavy machinery would have been a problem. So they pushed me aside, gave me a broom, told me to sweep out the bathroom until the inspectors went. But at 18, uh, I learned how to run printing presses. And in fact, in, at the age of 18, I joined a union, the printer's union. Wow. Uh, then went off to law school and, uh, well, wait, spent, undergrad yeah. at Tulane, right? Yes, I was an undergrad at Tulane, but uh, when I when I got to where I worked in the printing plant from 13 until I went off to law school. And then when I was in law school, I did two internships, one in the Brooklyn DA's office um, and one in the U.S. Attorney's office for the Southern District of New York, where I wound up uh, going there in 1971. So well, tell me about being an intern for the Brooklyn DA's office. Was it sort of like Law & Order meets Brooklyn Nine-Nine? I mean, I, I'm it really was, interested to know. It was fascinating because I worked with career uh, assistant district attorneys. The cases in the DA's office were, for the most part, much different than what you saw in federal court. Uh, the cases involved uh, rape, murder, narcotics, um, the, the, what's what's generally called blue collar street crime, um, and uh, it's a whole different environment than what you saw in the federal courts, where I went in 1971 in the U.S. to the U.S. U.S. Attorney's Office. 
in uh, 67, I spent the second year of law school, between the first and second year of law school, in the DA's office. In the second and third year, I spent in the U.S. Attorney's office in Manhattan, the Southern District. Right. In half the summer in the narcotics unit and half the summer in the securities frauds unit. Well, and working securities frauds unit mm. got me interested in going to the SEC where I went after I graduated law school. Exactly. So, you know, you really had your toe in many different areas of being on the government side. What kind of cases, aside from narcotics, did you try when you became a U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, which, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is known today for being at the forefront of criminal law enforcement for terrorism, white collar, cybercrime, mortgage fraud, public corruption, organized crime. Uh, What about back then? The, well, when I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, I went right into what we call the short trials unit, where we learn how to try cases. Uh, my first year there, uh, my first 11 months in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I tried 15 cases, uh, 13 to a jury, and two were bench trials. Before wow, a judge. That, that is a lot, isn't it? It is, it is a lot, but the cases were two days, three days, four days, not long. Today, of course, you've got cases that run. And then when I uh, uh, got out of the uh, short trials unit, I went right to the securities frauds unit. And in those days, I had trials that lasted uh, a month and a half instead of two or three days. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, what's happened, uh, the good news is that, of course, the Southern District has taken uh, the, the most publicly available cases that you can't imagine uh, that uh, uh, the, the, the cases that the Southern District and to an equal extent the Eastern District of New York as well, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, Long Island, and so forth. Uh, but the cases are much longer because they're taking much bigger cases that take much longer with two or three assistant U.S. attorneys. And they're everything from insider trading cases to organized crime yeah. Yeah. to terrorism and the like. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we will be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. 
What was one of the most memorable cases you tried during those internships, whether it was in the Brooklyn DA's or, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office? I, I mean, look, it can be something dinky or hilarious as long as it was memorable. Well, I guess the most memorable one was a six-week trial that I had uh, in a uh, what we call a pump and dump, where the defendants had secret Swiss bank accounts and were manipulating stocks in the United States and hiding the proceeds in secret Swiss bank accounts. Mm-hmm. What made it interesting was that uh, the uh, defendants, there were two of them, uh, were... Uh, planning to forge documents uh, to show that I had a secret Swiss bank account. <laughs> and we're going to, uh, <laughs> and then we're going to introduce that to show that I was trying to hide my own secret Swiss bank account. But that case virtually had every conceivable uh, legal issue you can possibly imagine. We, we got a conviction. I should, I should add that um, in the federal system, Uh, 97%, 97%, I'll repeat it, um, of federal criminal cases either wind up with a plea of guilty or a conviction after trial. Hmm. Uh, Today, very few cases are tried. Your career, speaking of the SEC, has been marked by high-profile white-collar crime cases. The most famous, of course, as I mentioned, being financier-turned-Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff. Before Bernie, though, Let me do that again. Your career, of course, has been marked by high-profile white-collar crime cases, the most famous being financier-turned-Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff. But before Bernie, there was Belfort, Jordan Belfort. He's that infamous wolf of Wall Street who pled guilty to fraud and stock market manipulation charges and spent, what, 22 months in prison. How did he land on your law office doorstep? Uh, I'll take about a minute to tell you, he showed up in my office uh, in 1989, working for a very small, uh, not very reputable firm. And it's in the movie, it shows him going into a garage and he's working for a a bad firm. Uh, He came to visit me and basically said uh, that he's starting his own firm and uh, he needs help in how to run it. Uh, I went out and hired a guy who had been on Wall Street for almost 50 years, who I had known, had worked with, uh, who knew brokerage firms backwards and forwards, inside and out. And I sent him out there to uh, take a look at what Jordan and his partner, Danny Porsche, were setting up. And uh, he came back and says, you can't imagine how bad this place is. (laughs) So I met with Jordan. And I I said to Jordan, Jordan, you got to do it right. If you're going to, if you don't do it right, you're going to have trouble. We shook hands. He said goodbye, and then two years later, I think it was around 1991, um, I saw in the Wall Street Journal that his firm was under investigation. He had trouble, just like you predicted. He had trouble. I had predicted it, and uh, uh, I read the article. And uh, the next day, he called me, and he said, uh, uh, "I'd like to come in and talk to you." So my response was, where have you been, Uh, in so many words? And he said, well, uh, you scared the hell out of me two years ago. I won't tell you the exact words he used, because this is a family podcast. (laughs) uh, I said, come on in. And from that time on until 
97, let's see, 1975, right. he pleaded guilty. We represented him in the investigations uh, and in the SEC investigation, the Department of Justice investigation. Um, well, so well finally, let's just be clear for people who don't know the story. He marketed penny stocks to unsuspecting investors who got scammed by his pump and dump operation. Uh, those well, investors lost around $200 million. What made you, oh, yeah. what made you say yes to a guy who squandered people's life savings on drugs and women and yachts? You, you raise the question that has troubled me for some time. Without question, I have no problem in representing people who are alleged to have done bad things. Okay. That's the role we play in society, the role of a defense lawyer. And in particular with Madoff, I got emails that uh, are not, uh, uh, I'm not going to mention because the language was abominable. Of course. The anti-Semitism that existed with those emails ran from, uh, how can you represent someone like this my deep, another one said, my deepest regret is that the entire Sorkin family didn't die in the Nazi death camps. Uh, I had other emails that dealt with, uh, how can you represent people who do bad things? Um, uh, and that's mild. Uh, the emails were pretty strong. Uh, and my response in all of those cases was, look, a little piece of history is important. In 1770, uh, John Adams, our second president, represented a bunch of British soldiers who fired upon a bunch of colonists um, and killed the colonists. He represented those British soldiers. Right. Uh, and our history uh, is full of individuals who represented, because that's the role we play, uh, represented people who are alleged to have done bad things not because you agree with what they've done, but your role is to force the government to, to prove, prove its case. Its case. That's the role we defense lawyers play. And it goes all the way back to colonial America, the King George. We didn't have a king. We still don't have a king. And the role that defense lawyers play is to force the government to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt in the criminal context. Right. And, and that's what we play. And they say, uh, what they say, and if you do not have counsel, one will be granted to you. If you cannot afford be, counsel, yes. you will get the, counsel. Out of, out of the Miranda case back in 1966, uh, you have the right to remain silent. Mm -hmm. If you can't afford counsel, one will be appointed for you. Um, anything you say may be used against you and so on and so forth. Uh, we don't make judgments with respect to guilt or innocence. The role we play is to force the government to prove its case. That's the role we play. Okay. And I understand it. all of that. And I believe our system is the best. Absolutely. But yeah. let me just ask you about Monzer Alcazar. He was the wealthy, ostentatious arms dealer whose nome de guerre was Prince of Marbella. I mean, this guy's dad was actually a legit diplomat who served as Syria's ambassador to Canada and India. And yet he grew up to sell weapons that were later tied to terrorist attacks, including the cruise ship Achille Loro. So here's where where I really I want to understand you. And I want to understand your decisions. The hijackers using weapons traced to your defendant 
They killed a disabled Jewish American passenger, Leon Klinghoffer, and then tossed his body overboard. I remember this as a much younger person and being so devastated. So, again, how do you justify defending somebody like Al-Qasar uh, beyond what you've just described? I mean, did you did you have any sort of push-me-pull-you within your heart and mind? Well, I will tell you a conversation I had. I've been very involved uh, with the, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I've been to Israel about 47 times because I'm on the Board of Governors and on the Executive Committee of the University. And in those years, I became friendly with the former head of the Israeli Mossad and also the former head of the Shin Bet, which is the domestic, right. it's like our FBI. And what's very interesting is that even though, and I'll go back to Kassar and then uh, uh, Madoff, even though Madoff's victims, many of them were Jews, and even though Kassar was, as you say, responsible for what the things that you say he did, mm -hmm. the Israelis understood. I remember a conversation I had with Carmi Galan, who was head of the former head of the Shin Bet, and who was affiliated with the university. Uh, I said, you know, Carmi, I, I represent a fellow by the name of Al-Qasar. And he smiled. And he said, oh, you're talking about Manzer. Israeli intelligence knew about this guy. However, this was two years after we had represented him. Two years after, the Israelis had no problems at all. The senior people in the intelligence community, at least the two I former two I spoke to, had no problems with me representing an Al-Qasar because terrorists in Israel get counsel. Right. They're they are permitted to get counsel. It's a democracy. It's a democracy, notwithstanding what's going on today. They recognize that even the worst terrorists are entitled to representation. So my conversations with uh, these two individuals confirmed to me that in a democracy, even the alleged worst people right. who commit the worst acts are entitled to representation. So it never really bothered me. Uh, and it doesn't bother me to this day. I don't condone the conduct of an Al-Qasar or a Bernie Madoff or a Jordan Belfort. That's not my role to be judge, jury, um, and defense lawyer and prosecutor. My role is to force the government to prove its case. What did I say at the start? I said you have to have guts of steel to be like Ike Sorkin. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we will be right back. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent 
fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So I got to get to Bernie Madoff. How did you become his defense attorney? You've got to tell me the genesis of that. It's, it's uh, not terribly complicated. I met uh, Madoff in uh, the 1980s through my uh, beloved former partner, Howard Squadron. I was with that firm. And I met him. And on December 1st, he called me up. And he said, I need to talk to you. December 1st said, of the year he was arrested. 2008. Okay. December 2008. I said, fine, when do you want to come up? Uh, I had no idea what the conversation was going to be about. Uh, he said, how about December 12th, the, a week Friday? Later. I said, fine. Uh, on December 10th, I was on my way to Washington, D.C. to attend a function for the Hebrew University to raise money. Uh, I was then chairman of the American Friends Board. Uh, he called me just as I was about to leave for the airport and said, I can't make it Friday. How about Monday the 15th? I said, fine. Uh, again, not knowing what he was going to talk to me about. I go to Washington, D.C. I attend the dinner the nights before on the 10th. On the morning of the 11th, I'm sitting in a classroom, uh, preschool with my then youngest grandchild, and my telephone rings at about 9.30 in the morning, 9 o'clock. And the phone call was, Ike, it's Bernie. I'm handcuffed to a chair at FBI headquarters. I need your help. And I'm sitting in a classroom with a bunch of little kids. I jump up. I run out in the hallway. I said, who arrested you? FBI. I said, put the agent on the phone. Agent gets on the phone. I said, no more questions. No more talking. The tragedy of it, not that it would have made any difference at all, was that his two boys, and this is how the case broke, his two boys, Mark and Andrew, the day before on December 10th, while I was in Washington, ready to go to this dinner, were at the Madoff Christmas party, December 10th, 08. And at the party, he said to his wife, Ruth, and to Mark and Andrew, Come back to the apartment. Need to talk to you. Okay. They go back to their apartment on 64th Street. And he proceeds to tell the two boys and his wife, it's all a fraud. What's a fraud? The whole investment advisory business I have. This is the first time that the two boys had learned of this. And the wife, or Ruth, didn't understand any of it. Uh, that night, uh, Mark... Uh, contacted his ex-wife's husband, uh, father, who had worked with a very good, successful, large law firm in New York. And the father, the ex-father-in-law, contacted the SEC. And the next morning, while I am on my way up to visit my granddaughter, the two boys went down to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Southern District of New York, met with an FBI agent, told the FBI agent, what the father had told them the night before. The FBI agents went up to his apartment on the morning of December 10th. 
opened the door after they knocked. They asked him, um, is it uh, real? Is it not real? And he said, no, it's all a fraud. And they put handcuffs on him and they marched him down to the FBI headquarters at 26 Federal Plaza. Mm. And only after he had been debriefed and admitted what he had done, did he call me and say, I need your help. That's how it all broke. Uh, the tragedy was that the SEC, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office, really didn't know the scope of the Ponzi scheme. Uh, on my way back from, uh, I, I immediately called a young partner of mine from Washington and an associate. I said, get over to the U.S. Attorney's Office. He's going to be arraigned. They're not going to do a perp walk. Um, they negotiated a $10 million bond, uh, which uh, ultimately the U.S. Attorney's Office said was way too low. Mm -hmm. They tried to revoke his bond on at least four occasions. We were successful on keeping him out. I remember. I remember because our cameras were constantly chasing yeah. him. He'd walk down the hall and he'd walk down the sidewalk. And I mean, there's the famous one. This wasn't our photographer, but he put his hand out and another photographer shoved him. Yes, yeah, so that was on the way back to his apartment. Uh, and he said, go away. And, you know, obviously they took his passport, froze all of his accounts. Uh, the, the coverage of the arrest and his bail was uh, just incredible. Uh, I'm told that one of the uh, stations, I think it was ABC, had rented a room across the street in an apartment and put cameras there so they could watch his apartment and the and the lobby uh, 24-7. Uh, he was probably, during that period of time, one of the most well-known bases yes. in the world, at least in the United States. Did you have to nudge him to plead guilty? I mean, did he no. want to take his chances at trial? That's a fair question. And by the way, I should caveat everything I'm saying, that he's waived the attorney-client privilege. Okay. He's been interviewed. He Books have been written about him and so on. So what I'm disclosing to you, he's waived. Well, um, he also is no longer here with yeah. this world. Well, I, I have to tell you two quick funny stories about that. I've had two emails in the last six months from one guy who said he deserves a better funeral and therefore tell me how I can get his ashes. He was cremated. <laughs> I had another guy contact me who wanted the ashes, presumably, I suppose, to sell it on eBay. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm serious. But the, the question you put to me is um, that he we kept him out of jail. Why did he plead guilty? Uh, people have asked me that repeatedly. And I think he realized that had he been able to stay out, he would have been convicted anyway. Mm -hmm. By the time I got back from Washington on the shuttle that day, on the uh, 11th of December, uh, the SEC and the U.S. Attorney's Office had seized all his documents, had seized the computers, all the records, and so on. But I think the short answer is he pleaded guilty to protect his wife. Uh, we thought that Ruth, who uh, at best was very frail, had no understanding of what was going on, uh, was going to die. She was under constant pressure as to where she, she'd walk out to buy a cup of coffee or a cup of soup and be tailed by reporters and cameras and so on. 
So he pleaded guilty when he did, I think, to protect her and also to protect his two boys, Mark and Andrew. The tragedy with the two boys, of course, is that about six or seven years ago, Andrew died of cancer. He had had several bouts of cancer. And Mark, uh, on December 11, 2010, two years to the day of Bernie's arrest, Mark committed suicide. I remember. He hung himself. I remember. And he hung himself with his two-year-old child in the next room. So both boys were dead. Um, uh, certainly Mark died before in 2010. Andrew, I think, three or four years later. Uh, Ruth is still alive. But in response to your long answer to your question, why did he plead guilty? I think he okay. did it to protect her and to protect the boys. What is a case that you tried and lost, Ike, that still bothers you today? Um, that's a great question. Let me tell you the success of, you ask any defense lawyer, what's his greatest success before I get to the, his, uh, the conviction? <laughs> the greatest success of a defense lawyer is he keeps his client's name out of the newspaper. Mm. Uh, there is no joy in trying a case, uh, going out on the steps if there's an acquittal and say, see, my client was innocent. The jury did not find that he was guilty. And what the lawyer is really saying is the government didn't prove right. its case right. beyond a reasonable doubt, not that he didn't do it. Um, and so the great success of defense lawyers is, did you keep your client's name out of the newspaper? That's your best success. There are clients you don't even know about who were not charged, who were under investigation, and the investigators went away. Um, the What case did I lose? I lost one case when I was in short trials in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And since that time, I've lost other cases. lost a case in Miami. Um, I lost an insider trading case in New York. Uh, you can go through the list. I think most lawyers will tell you they've lost more cases than they've won, at least in the federal system. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to live with that because most of the cases brought federally are very strong cases. The federal government, the federal U.S. Attorney's Office has access to the DEA, the FBI, the IRS, the postal inspectors, um, a whole bunch of federal agencies, whereas the local police, the DAs, they have at best uh, the police department. And in no way am I denigrating the police department, but they don't have the resources sure. that the federal government has. Sure. So you have to factor that in. I have to ask you this, and, and I, I want to know it. It's, it's a hypothetical, and it's so lame, but I still sure. want to know, because you've really articulated well why you defend uh, very hated people in many cases where most people are obdurately opposed to even letting them have a chance at trial. But of course, yep. you've pointed out the democratic, uh, you know, rules of this country, and thankfully we have them. But would you defend a Vladimir Putin in a war crimes trial? What wouldn't you do? That's a good question. I'd first want to sit down with Putin to find out what his story is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the short answer is, yeah, under certain circumstances, uh, I would. You take also, let me shut this off, you take also those lawyers who've been fighting for the 
uh, prisoners in Guantanamo for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're still fighting for these guys, and no one said that these guys are, are uh, honest, law-abiding citizens. Um, you can. There are some lawyers. I mean, I, I've, I've debated. We're always debating that. Would you re- would you represent a Heinrich Himmler? Would you represent a Herman Goering? Would you represent Putin? Um, it really depends. I think for myself, uh, I would be very reluctant to represent somebody who is a pedophile or who abused children or who abused women or who was a wholesaler of fentanyl drugs. Oh. On the other hand, on the other hand, if I was appointed by the court to do it, I would do it. And again, that's the role we play. I might be terribly uncomfortable about what the charge is, but that's not my role. Well, it reminds me of the Hippocratic Oath for doctors. When somebody is brought in, my dad was a surgeon and he said, Liz, you know, some people were brought in and and we were told he just shot and killed a cop. Yep. We still have to try our best to save him. Yeah. I mean, listen, you don't make... You don't make a judgment, and that's as good an example. I've used that example. If you're an emergency room doctor and some guy has come in and he uh, shot up a school with kids and he shot up some cops, you don't say, this is a bad guy, Uh, I'm going to let him die. No, you don't do that. Um, uh, You let the justice system deal with his conduct. You're dealing with his health and his uh, constitutional rights, if you're aware. You got any hobbies, Ike? I mean, let's talk about Ike outside the courtroom. <laughs> well, let's see. I've got uh, uh, hobbies. Uh, I try to see my five grandchildren as much as possible. I played golf until um, uh, I threw my right shoulder out. My left shoulder's been operated on. <laughs> my knees are in bad shape, but I do work out, and I do take Pilates, and I work out in a gym. I do a lot of reading when I get a chance. So I would say working out and reading are the two most active things. When I was in better shape on my shoulders, I had played golf. Fiction or nonfiction? Uh, I'm, I have become a nonfiction uh, reader, biographies, American history. But I do, on, as an aside, what I've been doing for about 20 years, I tutor and mentor uh, elementary school kids on the Lower East Side. Uh, I started again... Two days ago, as a matter of fact, uh, COVID, they kept me out. They didn't want anyone coming in. But I tutor and mentor third graders. 45% of these kids uh, who are at the school that I mentor third graders live in shelters. Wow. And so oh I work with these kids, and I've been working with them for decades. Uh, and now I'm teaching law students. Uh, they call me a professor. Why? I don't know. But I've become an <laughs> adjunct professor uh, for second and third year law students. Might have something to do with your real world experience. Finally, Ike, what legacy do you hope to leave behind in the legal world? And what do you hope others will remember you for in your role as a top, top, top world-class defense attorney? Well, I appreciate the compliment. Um, I guess the best thing one can say on my tombstone is he did the best he could Uh, to uphold the Constitution of the United States. I'm getting verklempt here. That that makes me emotional. (laughs) It has been wonderful to open up your mind and your world 
to our listeners. And listen, as I started this, I said controversial choices, but we all need to understand what drives highly successful people. And and I'm just so grateful that you gave us the time. Thank you so much. My pleasure and uh, stay well. And anytime you want to further the conversation, you know how to reach me. I sure do. I sure do. Ike Sorkin, this is really important. I'm so glad that you stuck with this particular podcast because you got to learn, even if you disagree or you say, I could never do what he does. This is what we try and do with this podcast is let you understand and open your mind to learning, not necessarily agreeing with, but understanding the other side. So I think that this might be one of the most important podcast episodes I, I've done. So I really appreciate you listening. And, uh, you know, you always want to learn what what's really behind the mind of somebody who becomes very successful in quite the interesting uh, field of <laughs> criminal defense. Uh, listen, you want to talk about success? Watch me Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Claim and Countdown. We talk about money, how to grow it, how to protect it. Right? Who doesn't want to do that? Thanks again, you guys. As always, I'll see you next time. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.